One of the mightiest weekends in the history of the box office produces a pair of instant classics, and somehow, they're the most completely different films in the whole universe. Or are they? Because what I witnessed this past week was a film that gets to the centre of who we are as humanity. Where we've been, where we're going, and how much danger there is in letting man have too much power. And I also saw Oppenheimer. Welcome to Movies Are Good! Huzzah! It's the Barbenheimer thing. We've been waiting for this weekend as internet memers everywhere celebrate what began as a funny joke, then slowly turned into a frenzy pitch excitement for a huge pair of films, neither of which would have been on my bucket list for top summer blockbuster, but here we are. And today we're focusing on that pair of wondrously weird Marvels that are going to be about as successful as any of the actual recent Marvel movies. Wow. So, let's begin. As I did at the cinema, with Oppenheimer, okay? And, I mean, it's the only way to do it, right? I think everyone's pretty much made up their mind on that. If you're going to do Barbenheimer, you have to do it Oppenbarben. Oppenbarbenheimer, yeah. You have to do Oppenheimer first, okay? It is a Christopher Nolan movie. It is a three long Christopher Nolan movie. If you didn't, if you didn't know going in it was a Christopher Nolan movie, you would expect this to be dull as fuck, okay? Because the biopic genre it's gone it's it's just gone so downhill over the last few years ever since bohemian rhapsody you know i personally really like bohemian rhapsody it doesn't matter uh, the point is after that everyone kind of went oh every musician ever it's time the call has been put out let's do all of those because biopics can't be boring if you've got all these fun songs everybody knows in them and and you come up with like little stories about how the artists like wrote those songs or whatever doesn't work. <laughs> Most of them have not worked. They did like Whitney Houston, didn't like it. Elvis, I didn't even really enjoy. These films just drag, especially in the second half. Because it's all, oh, the rise, the rise, the rising. And then, inevitably, every single time, it's, oh, but then they discovered drugs. And, and started to fall, fall, fall. And then they die at the end. And it's just sad. Oh, God, it's just sad. Um, but Oppenheimer's different. <laughs> to get back on point, Oppenheimer is not like that, okay? Even though it is longer than any of those movies dared to be, this film is fantastic. And I think more than any other biopic maybe ever, this is about, th about the man and about how his mind worked and how he experienced this huge volume of trauma from his own creation. Not as much as the people it was used on, obviously, but there is a lot of time speaking, uh, spent thinking about the effects and the effect of this creation on humanity in a larger sense. I, that's just there, omnipresent throughout the film. Um, and I don't get it. Like, some people have complained. The two main complaints I've actually heard about this film are not even really about this film. You know, one of the complaints um, is that it doesn't pass the Bechtel test, okay? And I understand the need for us to address that about movies, modern day, and to go, hey, women should be talking in these films. But in a film that's so entirely about this man, the script, I saw some of the screenplay online. It's in first person. It's literally, it is so completely about him. Even the bits about Strauss are about Oppenheimer. In a film like that, it just, I don't know. 
it's unlikely that you're going to pass the Bechdel test if the subject is a man in that kind of situation because every thing is, it links back to him. So yeah, it was always unlikely we were going to get a conversation between two women not about him throughout the film. You know what I mean? But anyway, that was one complaint I heard. The other complaint is that it doesn't show the effects of the bomb. I think some of the scenes that it shows are more haunting, more horrific more psychologically terrifying than it would have been to actually show the bomb going off in Japan, which probably would have come off as gratuitous and not nice, kind of cringy in nature. So I'm really glad they didn't do that. I'm really glad. Um, so yeah, I completely disregard every complaint I've heard about this film. I It was weird <laughs> that the father of the atomic bomb we saw in like so many sexy scenes, but as a character and as what he like was like, all the stories I've heard since the film came out, it does seem like he just he wasn't what you would expect him to be, and I'm re it's really interesting to like uncover the layers behind this character, which is what the film's all about. I loved the black and white bits with Strauss. That felt just oh, I don't know everything about that. I really hope Robert Downey Jr. gets uh, at least a nomination for best supporting actor at the Oscars because everything about those bits was just perfect in making this feel like one of those old films, like like Schindler's List or, or like 12 Angry Men. Or it, it made it feel like something legendary because he himself was already, through his hatred of him, immortalizing Oppenheimer. It was so, it was weird, but it's so beautiful. Um, it is an amazing film. It's so incredibly well made. It's so incredibly well acted. Oh, I mean, none of none of the ladies did have enough screen time to get really nominated for Best Actress. But Best Supporting Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Actor, Best Screenplay, Adapted or Original, I guess it would be an adapted one, right? It was adapted from a book, technically. Um, and, and Best Director. Like, this, I would not be surprised if it swept most of the major awards. It is so incredibly well made. It's a beautiful film. It's a haunting film. The final scene? Holy crap. The final conversation just between Oppenheimer and Einstein? That was... Oh. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's incredible. And it makes you question a lot of things. <laughs> um, it's so interesting. And I, I don't even know how to, like, talk about it. I feel like I need to see it like another three times before I can properly like analyze this film at all. The the early sections. I mean it is it's a little bit <laughs> there are times where you can really see the Nolan like particularly shining through. Like it was very reminiscent when he went to collect all the scientists with Matt Damon of like a kind of heist movie or like Inception even when he was building his team in that. Um and there, there are little bits like that where it really comes through and shines through how much Christopher Nolan loved doing this. You can really see it and tell. Um, and yeah, that's that's a good point. Like even characters like Matt Damon's, they don't feel as deathly serious. And that is an amazing thing. That despite it shouldn't work. Okay, there's there's like a rule about when you protagonize someone, you know. You can have this aura of mystery, this sense of, wow, legend, about, like, it's easy to do that for Einstein in this movie, because he's barely in it, you know? It's easy to make it like, whoa, it's Einstein, this legendary figure. And that wouldn't work in the same way, or it shouldn't, if you put him in the protagonist role. 
in the same film, okay? Or even if you had him more in it, you, you kind of dispel this aura around him as a character. I don't feel like we dispelled the aura around Oppenheimer. I feel like the film, putting him in the protagonist role, it built on it. <laughs> it made him seem like more mysterious and intriguing, even as it kind of unlayered his character and, and went down to his core and what really bugged him, what really scared him. And I have to say, the, the fact that they actually showed him having like full-on panic attacks, that's fascinating. That was really interesting to me as well. The whole film is exactly as good as we would have dreamed it could be when we first heard Christopher Nolan's making an Oppenheimer movie. As all of the promotional material made it seem, it made it seem like it was going to be this incredible legendary thing. This massive blockbuster, even though it's a biopic, a three-hour biopic about a scientist. And then, yeah, every step along the way. It seemed like it was going to be this epic, and it was. And I know that Nolan films get a big, how do you do, as, they, as you build up to the release. But after Dunkirk and Tenet, you just feel like something about that should have been dispelled slightly. They, we shouldn't have been this excited for it, and yet we were, and it deserved it to be. And I can't do anything but give Oppenheimer a straight 10 out of 10, no questions asked. It's just insane. I feel like I've not even begun to dig into the meat of how incredible this film was and how well it was built. Florence Pugh deserves a shout-out as well. Emily Blunt's character was the weirdest one to me because she just she just got shown being like like a sad drunk most of the time and then she was incredible when they actually questioned her. It was weird. But yeah, overall, the film was just mind-blowing. It, it has blown my mind. I don't even know what to say. I really need to see it again. I really do. I loved it. Killian Murphy, I mean, I can't fathom a world where he doesn't win Best Actor and deserves it. After his career, after everything he's done, like, he really deserves that, I think. But it was nuts. And I was left completely stunned by it in cinema. And then I got up and five minutes later I was watching Barbie. <laughs> and what can I say about Barbie? I mean, she is a Barbie girl. In a Barbie world. Life is plastic, but it's fantastic. That's kind of catchy. We might want to use that. <laughs> um, Barbie, right. Now, what was I expecting for Barbie? I was expecting that it was going to be really good. I was expecting that it would have that flair of great feminism um, that both Lady Bird and Little Women had. Greta Gerwig's just, she's just fantastic. Um, I love her filmmaking style, and I really expected this to just fall into that instead of feeling so blockbustery. It did end up feeling surprisingly blockbustery for me. I'll say that. Um it honestly people were surprised after seeing it by how like deep it was and how well written it was. I I wasn't I I expected those parts because I didn't think Redegger was was going to make anything that was even vaguely childlike or or even child friendly I mean arguably you could you could get a fairly young child to watch this and they'd maybe enjoy it I don't know it, it really makes me question would they because there's just so much they wouldn't get but I mean things go over kids heads and they just enjoy it anyway for the colors and the Barbie of it all I guess <laughs> probably um it is it's a weird film and there is cookiness to it there's I wouldn't describe it as a surprising level of cookiness because you needed 
some of that in, in a film like this. But basically, Barbie is Barbie. She's stereotypical Barbie. That That's the Margot Robbie one. There's like... There's a lot of characters called Barbie, and there's a lot of characters called Ken, and then there's Alan. <laughs> I gotta say, Alan is a fantastic character. Um, but Barbie is just doing Barbie things, and she's not actually with stereotypical Ken. I was looking up the character name because I wanted to do a fan cast later in this episode for Barbie. And no, she's with Beach Ken. <laughs> and then stereotypical Ken is another character. I don't even remember seeing him around that much, but yeah, doesn't matter. And then Barbie starts to get thoughts of death. And she gets cellulite, and her heels go flat to the ground, and she freaks out. And then she goes to see Weird Barbie, who's Kit McKinnon, and that was genius casting. And uh, and she tells her, you got to go to the real world and find out what's going on. And, and then they go to the real world, and they kind of just constantly make jokes about, like, don't question, like, how we got here, or what the divide between the worlds is, or what is Barbie world. It doesn't matter. <laughs> just, just don't, okay? Um, there's no point. <laughs> and, uh... From then, there's this little adventure they go on where America Ferreira and her daughter, Ariana Greenblatt, who I feel like I've seen in a million films, but she's still only like 15 years old, um, they come with her back to Barbie Land, and then the cans have taken over because Beach Can finds out about patriarchy and goes, nice, and goes back and takes over Barbie Land and all the cans take over, and then it's a whole, uh-oh, toxic masculinity thing because the cans have learned toxic masculinity and now they're terrible and now the Barbies have got to take back Barbie Land forcefully and not give the cans anything because men are terrible, and it's a whole thing. And a lot of guys I've seen complaining, and they're trying, <laughs> they're trying to make the point that it goes so far, you know, in, into like being like, no, 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 and they think it's treading into the realms of toxic femininity, or toxic feminism, um, and I disagree, even though I understand what they're saying, because... The film is making the point, and it, it's doing it in a, you know, way over-the-top manner, you know? <laughs> I don't believe that Greta Gerwig actually thinks that all men are like this, the way it, it's put it. But it you can see, like, Alan, okay? Be an Alan, you know? Sure, you can be Kenuff, and that was funny. But being Alan is, I think, the point, you know, that even the Alan wanted to escape Barbie Land after the Kens took over. Because it's just fucking ugh, you know? <laughs> and I really related to that. Because seeing a world filled with this kind of toxic masculinity is so depressing for a lot of guys. Well, I hope a lot. That, <laughs> that just aren't into that, just just really aren't into that, and are okay with it being more 50-50. I would have preferred it if they did make a note of that at the end, more of a note out of the, yeah, we won't put a can on the council or on the Supreme Court or whatever, but maybe we'll put Alan on? Like, they they didn't do that or anything, and yeah, but I did I did love that they took it so far. All of the all of the points they were making about man, all of the like, oh, let me sit down and explain the Godfather to you, you know, <laughs> not all use words slowly, and um, like some of them were basic points that like harken back to like very basic two thousands meal like Disney Channel characters and how they would be, and some of them felt real relevant. I really felt like I really loved the um, America Ferrera's uh, Gloria. Gloria was her character. Uh, I loved her husband trying to like keep up his Duolingo streak. <laughs> Just sitting on the sofa doing that for half the film. That was funny. That was really good. Um, but no, I felt like the the film takes these points so far 
because it kind of has to at this point <laughs> for the for to actually get through the skulls of the actual toxic man um <laughs> so i kind of i love that i i loved all of that i thought the plot it's a bit it is a bit lacking i think the plot it kind of it is a bit all over the place i think that's fair to say because they just kind of go to the real world and barbie's like oh god and then they go back and the the ceo of mattel and stuff from the real world all those business guys are like following them back but that don't even end up being a problem at the end it's yeah um it does very much the third act like irritating wraps things up in way too neat a bow but uh, I'm. I still mostly enjoyed everything it was saying, and and it was. <laughs> it feels weird to say, but it was as a film more about the statements it was making than the actual plot. <laughs> but it had enough comedic bits, cameos, just fun. It just had enough fun to it um, to kind of make up for that. And I feel like the best bit was the second act. Watching Ken learn about the patriarchy was fucking hilarious. It was so funny. When he went back to Barbie Land and had taken over and it was doing that whole bit, that was less actually funny and it was more just like, yeah. <laughs> kind of like, it, it was making it lighthearted about it, but it was just the depressing reality of the patriarchy. Um, but even so, I really loved... I, I enjoyed the whole film. Um, I get some of the complaints people have about, like, how good is it actually as a film. <laughs> but it's really funny. It Some of the some of the script is amazing. America Ferrer's speech, that was awesome. That was brilliant. Um, it, so it's got all of that going for it. It has got just a lot of really fun characters. It's got a who's who of goddamn lady cast. And um, and it had John Cena as a merman, which was just <laughs> completely out of the blue, but really funny as well. <laughs> so overall, I think Barbie, it's not, it's not an incredible film, but it's a really great statement. And it was enjoyable overall to watch. Even if I'm saying it's not a great film, it's really fun to watch, okay? Does that make sense? I don't even think that makes sense, but that's that's kind of, that's my overall feelings of it. You know, I watched Oppenheimer, and that was an amazing film with amazing statements that it made about so many things. Barbie had really amazing statements and flashes of brilliance, and it didn't really quite tie it all together as well as I perhaps hoped it could. But did I really expect it to? <laughs> like, did you really expect this this film to have like an incredible plot? Nah, I'm not sure if I did. Overall, I still think Barbie's done enough to get like a strong eight out of ten. I was bordering. I was I was caught between eight and nine on this one. It's it's close, but I think eight out of ten, strong eight out of ten. It, yeah, it's not something that I'd go, wow, that was one of my favorite films of the year. But it's going to really stick in my mind for a long time anyway. I think. And I think that's more what they wanted than to make an amazing film out of this one. So congratulations. Well done, Greta Gerwig. Go enjoy your Narnia reward. Yeah, she's moving on to make like Narnia stuff for Netflix. Interesting. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see what she does with that. It's quite different from what she normally does. But yeah, I'm excited for it. And um, that's, yeah, that's Barbenheimer. 
a strong, easy, straight up 10 out of 10, and a strong female head, <laughs> 8 out of 10, that has like 11 out of 10 motives behind it. Yeah, I like that. It's ranking time! <laughs> it's ranking time, kids. The Insidious franchise is a classic case of a horror movie that was successful and reasonably good without being amazing, but it did well enough that the studio jerked the gherkin completely dry on this one, really milked those grapes till they were only raisins. With the release of a It's Come Back After All This Time entry that's only come out like 12 years after the original, it's definitely time to examine the whole. So, here's the Insidious franchise ranked from worst to best. We're starting with Insidious Chapter 3, which is confusingly named because it's actually a prequel to Chapters 1 and 2 and doesn't involve the Lambert family at all. But it does have Lynn Shea. And here's the thing I love about Lynn Shea. She manages to be every the demon is haunting us and we need some weird old person to tell us more about it person ever. That is her role in almost every film I've ever seen her in. I mean, a lot of them in those kind of films are, like, priests, but she managed to be every non-priest one of them in existence. <laughs> there are so many movies where there's some kind of supernatural entity and they, they're, they find out some old person who used to be haunted by this or who knows something about it or who has a history with these things and they go to them to ask for advice in the kind of middle of the second act and that's her. It's Lin Shay. It's always Lin Shay. And a lot of it stems from her role as Elise in the Insidious films. So... I basically figure that for this one, they just couldn't get Patrick Wilson or Rose Byron back to do another Lambert family thing. Likely because of the Conjuring movies and the Bad Neighbors movies, respectively. But they could get Lynn Shea back because woman can't just, she cannot be getting any offers outside of the paranormal horror genre anymore. So they figured a prequel just set a few years before the first two films allows them to, you know, bring her back to life. Though I gotta say, for a woman that dies in the first movie of the franchise, like, they find... Just whatever to just to just keep her around. God, she she just has been in every single film in the franchise, even though she died in the first. It is impressively weird. <laughs> that that's got to be quite a statistic. How many films can you appear in in the franchise after your character dies? She must have the record. Or someone in Star Wars, or someone who just gets brought back to life, but without doing that, like good job, you know. <laughs> Um, so yeah, there's this girl, she's got a dead mom, mama's dead, dead is mom, and she wants to speak to her mom. Uh-oh, but her mom's dead, dead is mom. So she contacts Elise, Elise comes in, they open a door, maybe a red one, to something kind of really bad, and Elise tells her not to make any more contact, or she can pull this spooky man-who-can't-breathe demon ghost thing into their world. So Quinn doesn't listen, contacts mother, scary ghost man causes accident that breaks both her legs, and now we've got paranormal rear window. Huzzah! So they contact Elise again, and she's like, no, the bride in black demon thing is hunting me, and I'm getting fucked if I keep going in there. I'm getting too old for this shit, and then she does it anyway and succeeds because she ain't getting too old for this shit. Yeah, I should mention that even though chapter three is the worst of the lot for me, it's not, like, it's not tragic, you know? At this point, or at some point in most long-running horror franchises, and I think at five films we get to count this among those numbers, there's at least one absolute stinker in almost all of them. And that's not really the case for Insidious. Not for me, you know? It's not great. It's kind of cringy at times. It's got the whole 
mother's ghost comes in and saves her child at the end. That's like way on the nose. But this franchise puts almost as much emphasis on the bar of family as the Fast and Furious franchise. <laughs> I do think they do a good-ish job with the concept. It, you know, the girl trapped in real life while experiencing these things is fun to play with. I'm certain they weren't the first to do it. They definitely weren't the best at it. I feel like one of the Annabelle films did a way better job with that idea. But simply put, they kind of did a little more, even though a prequel felt, you know, <laughs> just super unnecessary for this franchise. It was kind of bad overall without being an abomination. It, it almost justifies its existence. And I'm giving Insidious Chapter 3, 4 out of 10. Then, Insidious The Last Key. Because we know you didn't get, you know, enough with just one unnecessary prequel starring Elise, so this time it's all about her. Yeah. There's so much about keys and doors in this franchise. Makes me scared to open any doors I see in my own demonic nightmares. Uh, I said too much. <laughs> anyway, the last key is about Elise's childhood home and the demon who still haunts it. He's called Keyface. Because... No, <laughs> it's just fucking dumb. He's called Keyface. Um, <laughs> they just couldn't have come up with a much worse name for that one. Anyway, Elise returns to her childhood home, finds out that the demon has been convincing men that live there to kidnap and trap women in that house, including her father for decades, because demonically spurred women hitting is... cool? Or a man wrote this and wanted to try and excuse some of the general crimes of man throughout history by saying demons made them do it. Wow. <laughs> That's like a child saying, no, no, my imaginary friend drank all the milk or, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, maybe this fits in more with Barbie themes than I expected the Insidious franchise to do. So, she gets kidnapped by a demon and taken to the further after her niece already got kidnapped by a demon and taken to the further. But not to worry because her other niece has the Shan in her, whatever you want to call it. And she can also go to the further and get them all back. And um, if the ending of chapter 3 was just too dumb for you with the little girl's mother coming down as a ghost to save her at the end, don't worry, because this time Elise's long, long dead mother's ghost will come down to save them. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Honestly, for the quirky little ways it builds to the, to the original Insidious, as if that's such a legendary film that it deserved two prequels, the kind of full circle way it all worked, it helped this one for me, you know? The name Keyface most certainly did not help this one, but I feel like the human side of the threat, the overall story, the little the little twists along the way, it worked quite well. And I'm surprised because this whole film happened to like adults, and I find that a good rule of thumb is that it's scarier if it's happening to children. That makes the threat seem more real and immediate and all-powerful, you know? So I am actually surprised to find myself on rewatch enjoying this one a little more than Chapter 3. Just a little. But I definitely did, and I'm giving Insidious the last key 5 out of 10. Then Insidious Chapter 2, because to be fair, the first one ended on a cliffhanger and left us with a mildly interesting direction for it to go, so I won't complain about this one existing. So, you know, Elise is dead, and nobody cares. <laughs> like, it happened in the Lambert house, while the entire family were at home. None of the police are on their side about this being a demonic thing. Josh's fingerprints just aren't on the body, so they just kind of go, oh, well, there's nothing suspicious here. It's nuts. But the family moves into the grandma's house, and Josh starts getting real freaky and weird, but it'll take fucking forever for anybody to go, hey, you know, dad's not looking so good. Um, Elise is still around because she got that shining, and that's not just a funny joke in this film because the whole thing is literally about a dad getting possessed and attempting to kill his family, but, you know, it's fairly well done. 
for what it is. All of these films for me fail to tackle the paranormal in as interesting a way as the Conjuring movies or a few other ones, but I think usually paranormal ones are completely played out and the Insidious ones deserve a level of acclaim for keeping a pretty reasonable level of not completely crap throughout their tenure. So far, yeah. They literally just do some investigating in this one. They find out the actually kind of chilling, but very psycho-esque backstory to the Bride and Black character, and then they defeat him using, I swear to God, I think it's time travel, yeah. The further kind of lets them travel in time, so they'll do that and try to do it in time to stop Josh murdering his family, even though they're, if they're time traveling, surely they've got as much time as they need to do whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Just, it doesn't matter. Don't think about it too much. It's definitely stealing bits from all kinds of better horror movies. And The Shining, which is a legendary horror movie, but not one I like personally. I'm just not a fan of Stanley Kubrick. We'll get into that another time. Safe to say this does a pretty good job as far as horror sequels go, because they're generally awful. And I'm giving Insidious Chapter 2, 5 out of 10. And Insidious The Red Door is next. It's, yeah. It's the shortest time in Hollywood I've ever seen them take to do a long-awaited sequel kind of thing. From Chapter 2, which was the last one to feature the Lambert family, it's been 10 years. But since the last entry, since since the last key, it's only been like 5 years. But anyway, it's fun that we're coming back and carrying on from all the events we saw in the second film. Even if all of Dalton's realizations about what happened are things we already know. You know? All of the big shocks throughout this film are moments of him just remembering what happened in the second film. It feels like... They want you to have skipped the second film and just watch the first and then come and watch this and, and kind of fill in some of the blanks in your own head after watching it. I don't understand. I feel like it's an Insidious film for people who haven't seen the Insidious films. Yeah, I feel like you would like this film the most and get the most shock value out of it if you've completely forgotten everything that happened in at least the second film. Yeah, pretty much. Um, it is weird. Uh, it's, it's unusual seeing a college kid get terrorized but i really liked it i really liked that part of it i really related to it because i think a lot of adults can remembering that moment you know for me it's one of the most terrified just general times i felt in my life and one of the loneliest times i felt in my life even being in a building with other hundreds of other college kids it, it's that moment of being dropped off being left there away from your family away from everything you've ever known uh, it's, yeah, there's a real pervading sense of loneliness. At least there was for me. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And that's kind of what Dalton's experiencing. And that's why it's such a terrifying kind of moment. And that's why it, this film gets away with that rule of thumb being thrown out about it having to happen to children, this kind of paranormal stuff for it to work better. It's happening to, to kind of 18-year-old and it works really well, I think. It, it does a really good job. I really enjoyed the character of Chris, his college friend. She is fantastic. I thought she was so funny, so much fun as a character and so unusual a type of character for this kind of film. I thought that really worked well. It's just taking this kind of paranormal thing, which we've seen in the same setting a million times, and changing it up a little bit. And I enjoyed Josh's story as well. I loved the focus throughout this one on this kind of father-son relationship thing. Again, the family is a real, like, big focus for this whole franchise. And uh, it's a little on the nose. The I didn't like the finale very much. <laughs> I didn't really like the finale that much. The whole Dalton paints over the red door painting he did, and that paints over it in the further that was nuts that was stupid um i almost would have preferred it if, if yes dad just didn't make it out and had to sacrifice himself to save dalton but it's fine 
and their relationship and stuff I liked, and the kind of long-distance aspect to it was an interesting, different kind of thing. It feels like a horror movie that is a really good example of how to do it differently, but it really reminds us why they keep doing it in the same way <laughs> instead of trying something different because this is almost like maxed out how good it can do it in this style with with such a different vibe to it. So it's a good job. It wraps up, fingers crossed, the franchise as a whole um, and it does it well enough that I'm kind of happy and I, I feel like it's nice to get closure on the Lambert side of things, you know? Uh, instead of the message. The message at the end of Insidious Chapter 2 was, yes, we have to forget again. No. I, I feel like I feel like any of the allegories around this, you need to remember your own history, you know, um, to not repeat it. And I like this ending for them as a family more. I think it works well. And it feels like it, yeah, wraps up the whole franchise because you kind of had the two films starring the Lambert family and then you went off and did the weird prequel things. So this brings it back finishes it off, feels good. Um, I doubt it's actually permanent closure, but I'm hoping it is for now. And I'm giving Insidious the Red Door, 6 out of 10. And finally, kind of obviously, the best of the franchise, for me, is definitely the first on this one. Watching it back now, it, it just has so much more going for it than the ones that followed it. At least just came in as a paranormal investigator without having to come back as a ghost or it be a prequel. She just had this history with the family, the reveals about Josh and his childhood and the bride and black demon and the ending featuring it finally taking him. That was all cool. It could have left that as a cliffhanger and not done anything about it in terms of sequels and I wouldn't have minded. Um, that was one of the better excuses for a sort of final arg I've seen in a horror movie as well, you know? Normally it's just, oh, we figured out the rules of this thing. No, we've beaten it within its rules. Everything is fine. Whoops, no, it isn't. Arg, final scare, credits roll. Like, that is such a pet peeve for me in horror movies, and it didn't bother me with this one because they just did it better. It's just a smarter way around it. And the whole further thing, it's kind of a nutty thing, but I kind of like that as well. Um, and that's never bothered me about this franchise the further, as weird as it is and how ill-defined the rules of it are, because you have to give humans some kind of power in over these things. I think that works so much better. You know, in the Conjuring films, they work because the Warrens know how to get rid of these demons, know how to fight them. They can, they can tackle them. She's got kind of these mystical powers, you know? I think you need to have humans with some level of power over these things because otherwise it's just it's just dumb. It's just, oh, this demon is an all-powerful thing and can fuck around with you as much as it wants and kill you and whatever. But somehow you beat it. You know, I don't like those ones as much and I don't feel like they work normally. You have to find, a, you know, a way. It doesn't have to be a logical way, but you have to find a way <laughs> to, uh, to have people actually be able to fight them. And that worked well in Insidious, the way that they handled it. I liked it, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Insidious, the original. The Lambert family moves into a new house. There's something mysterious and spooky going on there. Dalton, their child, has a weird thing happen and goes into a coma. But now their other child is saying he's seen Dalton walking around at night. That is a really spooky bit. And there's this spooky song that goes all... And it's fucking terrifying. <laughs> it still scares the shit out of me when I hear that song now, okay? Because I originally saw this when I was quite young. And that does help. And some of the shots, some of the ghostly bits, some of the scares, they really stick in your mind as a consequence of it being such an early one for me, I think. But also, it just has more memorable scary moments than the others, realistically. 
Um, I don't think normally that paranormal stuff actually works all that well at being properly scary, but this did do a nice job. Uh, there are, you know, the spooky red-faced demon boy behind Josh, like, whoa! And the creepy thing in the corner of the bedroom looks like a shadow. There are just a lot of those quite memorable moments throughout this one. Even though I don't think of it as being an actual legendary or amazing horror movie, or one that really deserved that many sequels, it's a pretty good one overall. It's a kind of mid-range, like, consistently kind of between B and D tier horror movie franchise. It's never amazing. I just, I don't think it's ever that good. Um, it, and it was unfortunate timing for it to be coming out because the Conjuring film started a couple years later and everyone was like, oh, that's the number one best super way to do this kind of film. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I kind of still prefer the Conjuring films to these. The original Insidious, though, it's it's one I'm happy to watch back anytime. you know? Uh, it was a good example of <laughs> kind of the... I'd say, like, 2007, 2008, until, like, 2017, 2018. Like, that region, there were so many. Family moves into new house. It's haunted. You know, that's it. <laughs> that's the whole plot kind of films. And this was one of the best ones of just those, I think. So I'll give the original Insidious 7 out of 10. Not incredible, but fairly memorable for the genre, I think. Especially because it's had so many sequels now. And that's an easy ranking time there. Insidious 3 at the bottom, then 4, then 2, then 5, and the OG reigns supreme. That's a weird order to find a horror movie franchise going in, but honestly, there's a lot of horror movie franchises where, like, it's a bit bizarre and all over the place like that. Yeah, especially because they keep coming back and revisiting old ones nowadays. Um, I doubt they'll ever beat number one in this franchise. I don't doubt that they'll try and make more of these at some point. I really hope they leave it as it is. Nice franchise. Good amount of milking has been done. They do not need to touch it again. Wait a second. This movie is terrible. <laughs> Movies are so goddamn bad, okay? Every week we explore a movie that's just bad. Real bad. And from the opening seconds, where this dude has a comically sized sniper rifle and goes after a mysterious creature in the woods before spotting it, running at it with a machete while saying the line, Cock-a-doodle-doo, you son of a bitch. You just know there's something extra special about Night of the Were-Rooster. You know, I like to go a level beyond for this segment and not just look for bad movies because they're they're easy to find, but there's just something that is so completely boring about bad movies usually. Even the ones where you get a, a kind of funny or silly premise, most of the film's just, just boring and it drags. But sometimes <laughs> you find an extremely low-budget movie that tries to be funny that actually is somewhat funny, y you know? But more than that, it is bad. Definitely more bad than anything else, okay? The actors are bad. Even when some of the lines are funny, it's kind of funnier how badly they're delivered. There's, you know, the usual trademarks of a movie being bad enough to make it into this segment, having some lines that are incredibly hard to hear, really weird interludes where the big bearded guy seems to plug the camping store in Virginia that he must own or is friends with or something. Yeah, anyway. Um... <laughs> So there's this group of people that are brought together by a woman who tells them all she can help them find the people that they know that have gone missing in this forest. There's the buff dude, who's a dude, 
there's a girl called Lou who's annoyed at everyone because they didn't expect her to be a girl called Lou and also she has boobs and I swear to god that's the defining part of her character not as in she doesn't have a character as in either she or somebody else brings up her boobs once every three minutes until she dies and even after just like clockwork. It's awful. There's the mysterious lady who's gathered them all together, who's definitely evil. There's a man literally called Colonel Sanders. Oh. There's a crybaby guy who's lost his dad. And the guy pretending to be a hound dog when he's obviously, so obviously, incredibly obviously, gay as hell. That also just can't help but be mentioned once every three minutes while he is still alive. It's really annoying. So the whole thing is painful. And the banjo riffs that happen during the film at just random points, they happen a lot. <laughs> they also do the actual la-la-la-la-la sound effect to go into flashbacks, which are in sepia tone. And those bits are also the worst. <laughs> and the boob lady's flashback is literally about how her aunt convinced her to start showing off her boobs and hating men. Really insightful stuff for a character that dies first. <laughs> Now, in films like this, I get it, that everybody they get to agree to star in it, they want them all to have some level of screen time, but I really wish they'd started killing them sooner. I also kind of wish the first death wasn't one of them literally getting shit on. Like, am I the only one who didn't expect a were-rister's most dangerous attack to be acid poop? I... Anyway... <laughs> Nobody cares about that, by the way. They're all surprisingly lighthearted following one of them getting melted. They just they just go pitch their tents and chill for a while. Yeah. Um, and they explain the ways that somebody can become a were-rister. You know, witch doctors, passing gypsy women, but mostly just sex with animals. That part was actually kind of funny. <laughs> but from there, the hunt is on. You know, the gay guy mysteriously dies while he's with the woman who led them all out here, but that's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. And Colonel Sanders literally his name gets fucked up there are multiple this guy had his dick torn off jokes throughout the third act and uh then the final showdown and explanation of what's been going on the whole time make for like the most obvious but absolutely insane third act reveal um just in film history yeah it's nuts i have to say when the final guy is trying to decide if losing his humanity is too much price to pay for all the teal he could ever want like, it's pretty funny, but the complete lack of sound quality throughout is just painfully irritating. It really, it hurts. And that always bothers me so much with these films. Just, like, one decent mic that doesn't pick up an infinite amount of background noise would just... It would level all these films up a surprising amount, yeah. Uh, but overall, if you love random harem endings out of nowhere... Um, <laughs> If you love a surprisingly low number of chicken jokes, like, they make the same couple of jokes. They really like to, like, emphasize the cock jokes. But there's only a couple of them. And then there's, like, three or four jokes about the guy's name being Colonel Sanders, as if that wasn't just the worst idea ever. Um, and that's kind of it. Yeah. There, there's not actually, I kind of, I'd, I'd seen this one once before, and in my head I was like, that one was actually kind of funny, right? Watching it back, I, I gotta say, no, not really. It's funnier than most of these that are featured in this segment, you know? Because some of these films try to be funny and completely fall flat. This one, it lands a few of the jokes. Overall, though, 
it's it's still just terrible. <laughs> it's still so terrible. Um, it's difficult to sh score this, you know. I, I gotta give it, like, some credit for the sheer audacity of people actually spending time on making this. Uh, and for some of the jokes landing, I guess. But overall, it's still just so goddamn bad. So I'll give Night of the Were-Rister... Like a soft two out of ten. Like, like it'll just because I've seen so many bad movies that I have to give ones, and like I think it just like claws like just about into the two territory. It's it's fucking terrible though. Yeah, if you don't normally watch these kind of films, you'll still find it like so horribly atrocious that you want to stay away from it. Oh jeez, oh man, oh here I go, fan casting again. Fan cast time. Fan cast time. Oh here we go. <laughs> It's time for a fan cast. Each week we fan cast something weird. And I'm doing an especially weird one this week because I saw something on, I think it was on Twitter, about like, wow, the Barbie movie feels like, like they should have made it like years and years ago. And I was kind of like, interesting. What if they did? <laughs> what if they made Barbie? I, I kind of thought in my head like circa like 2000. What if it was a Barbie movie, the same Barbie movie, but made in the year 2000 instead of now? What would that have looked like? Because there's a lot of there's a lot of women who did these kind of pioneering roles in cinema that really helped move forward what a woman could do in a film and what a woman's role could be in a film. And a lot of them were around and at the primes of their careers at that sort of time, and I was like, wow, yeah, a lot of them could have started something like this, and it would have been a huge deal even then. Maybe not as big a deal as it is now, because, you know, but <laughs> it it would have been a huge thing, and it would have been, you know, Barbies were probably more popular as toys then than they are now. I don't know a lot of children. Do children still play with Barbies? Like, I'm assuming they might. I don't know. Yeah, probably, but it would have been an even bigger deal then, I think, and so I decided, let's fan cast Barbie as if it was being made in the year 2000. So where do you start? It's kind of obvious. I, there, were the, there were a couple options. You know, I'll put it out there. There were a couple options in my head for who could have played the stereotypical Barbie instead of Margot Robbie if you did this 20 years ago. I think it would have had to be Julia Roberts, though. I think it's necessary that it was Julia Roberts. The evolution of Julia Roberts from playing a hooker in 1990 and Pretty Woman, all the way through to playing, like, her own leading roles, like Aaron Brockovich, I think, came out in 2000. I think that would have peaked with her playing stereotypical Barbie. And she was. You know, she started out as this purely sex symbol character. Same as Margot Robbie did in her own career 10 years ago. 10 years ago, 2013. That was when Wolf of Wall Street came out, I think. <laughs> you know? And in that, it was just like, whoa, Margot Robbie, hot. And she's evolved into playing her own leading roles and much more expansive roles over the last 10 years. That's what Julia Roberts' journey was from 1990 in Pretty Woman all the way through to 2000, when she was doing things like Aaron Brockovich and could easily have played a role like this in the year 2000. And she would have been perfect. And she would have loved it, I'm sure. She would have had to dye her hair, to be fair. Margot Robbie already had just the exact look for Barbie. But, um, <laughs> but she would have, and she would have looked great, and she was the height of the world sex symbol at that point in kind of around 2000. So it would have been perfect. It would have been perfect casting. On the other hand, all the other Barbies. <laughs> I'm going to a little bit 
kind of rapid fire my way through this. I'm not going to lie because there were a lot of Barbies and there were a lot of people who you could have cast in these kind of Barbie roles. So um, I'll start with Weird Barbie. I think if you'd done it in 2000, you would have wanted somebody like Emma Thompson. I think Emma Thompson is perfect for that. I think she's exactly the kind of person who could have played that role now, except she is she's in her 60s now. It, it, not really. You couldn't really get away with it. But when she was kind of in her late 30s, early 40s maybe, yeah, it was kind of 2000, so just before Love Actually. Yeah, she was around like kind of maybe 40-ish, maybe a bit younger. I think that would have been perfect. She would have been great at that. She would have loved that role. She plays. She has played a lot in the past, these kind of quirky, wacky roles. And Weird Barbie's perfect for that. And Emma Thompson's beautiful and would have been great. Great mixture between the two. And she would have loved, I think, doing that kind of role and delivering that kind of comedy in a film with these kind of messages. Ah, she would have loved that. I say that like she's dead. It sounds like, no, she's not. She's just older no yeah and you know what i mean anyway she's still doing incredibly impressive really feminist affirming roles like good luck to you leo grand holy crap <laughs> if you haven't seen it you might not know what i mean but holy crap she's still doing incredibly awesome roles emma thompson i love her um moving on a lot of the other barbies weren't as big characters overall they kind of feel felt like faces in a crowd because there were just so many of them that they wanted to give a little bit of focus to. Um, physicist Barbie, I that was the one played by Emma Mackey. Really funny that they finally put Emma Mackey and Margot Robbie in a film together because they look so similar. Um, and it makes sense that if they're casting Margot Robbie as a Barbie, Emma Mackey would be another one. Uh, she was great. I loved her. I think if they were casting in 2000, they would have had somebody like Sandra Bullock play this role. Sandra Bullock was... Like, I almost, I wanted to kind of cast her as the main Barbie, and I was like, nah, maybe not, but definitely as one of them. Because things like miscongeniality around that time were doing very similarly intriguing things for feminism in films that Barbie is doing now. Sandra Bullock nailed it. She did so many incredible roles. And around that time, she was a big, big deal around, like, 2000. So I think she definitely would have been a part of this. Um, writer Barbie is the one that Alexandra Ship played, I think, in the new film. I think somebody like Tyra Banks would have done it in 2000. Come on, Tyra Banks. Another just straight-up 2000-ish sex symbol who was, at that time, kind of doing different things and proving that she could just be more than that. And this is the kind of thing that she definitely would have taken some kind of part in as another Barbie. Uh, Dr. Barbie is another one. Uh, yeah, sure. And I think Angelina Jolie is another person who just needed to be a part of this. If it was built in the year 2000, like, yes, just yes. <laughs> um, I don't even know the names of some of the other Barbies that were in this, but uh, I had a lot of other thoughts about people you could have cast. Um, oh, no, wait, President Barbie. I didn't do President Barbie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Halle Berry. <laughs> Again, just... I mean, this was before Catwoman, when she just, yeah, things happened. But around 2000, that was around the time she was starring in her Bond movie, and she was a huge deal. Definitely. Definitely around the time that she would have been another person who was in this. You could have also had things like cameos by, like, the Spice Girls, things like that. Like, there, I had so many ideas about how you could do this, and uh, it's just so intriguing. But I think that's the main ones that I would have wanted to specifically cast. Yeah. There's just, there's so many women from around that time that were really doing great things for women in cinema. You know? 
Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore. Oh, but it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Moving on. The cans. <laughs> no, Beach Can, the main one, the one that Ryan Gosling plays. Who would have played him in 2000? There were a few options. There's a few possibilities. But realistically, if they were casting this in 2000, it would have been Brad Pitt. <laughs> Julia Roberts and Brad Pitt as Barbie and Ken. That's 2000 in a nutshell. That's exactly what would have happened here. And it's what should have happened here. It's perfect. I love that. And Brad Pitt, you, you, like he's done so many great comedic roles that really prove, where he's just happy being this kind of dumb hot guy. Where, you know, there's no way they would have needed anyone else. Brad Pitt is the pinnacle. I mean, in some of the recent roles he's done, like things like Bullet Train, so great as this kind of reasonably dumb protagonist in that who just gets lucky a lot of the time, and it's played for great comedic effect. It would have been even more perfect <laughs> if they'd done it in 2000 when he was at kind of the height of the oh my god, it's Brad Pitt, kind of thing. If he'd done a role like this then, it would have blown everything out of the water. It would have been amazing to show off. I would have loved that. It would have fit perfectly. I'm kind of surprised, honestly, they didn't get him for a cameo in this one. But <laughs> but he is, he's on the older side of it now. I get it. Other cans? Difficult. Uh, tourist can is the one Simulu played in the new one. I think if they'd been casting it in 2000, they probably would have got someone to have the kind of rivalry like that with Brad Pitt. I think it would have been someone like Denzel Washington. I I think it would have been someone like Denzel Washington. Just, just to do that kind of like, heh, whatever, <laughs> beach can kind of thing. I think Denzel would have had a lot of fun playing that role in 2000. Uh, I think he'd have a lot of fun playing that role now. Man is still hot. But it would have been great to do in 2000, uh, and I could just see it. I could see Brad Pitt and Denzel with this kind of very shallow, silly rivalry, and then becoming like super toxic patriarchy brothers later. I think it would have been great. I think that would have been played off for a hilarious effect. And then like a more stereotypical Ken, because there is a character called Stereotypical Ken. I didn't even notice it who that was, but yeah. I didn't even remember seeing him in the film. But as another kind of Ken, they would have had George Clooney. He would have also been there. In 2000, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I feel like George Clooney's been like this more silver fox forever. But back in 2000 was definitely early enough that he would have he would have been there. Yeah, no question. That was before Ocean's Eleven. That came out in 2001. By the way, I'm realizing now, half the cast of Ocean's Eleven <laughs> I have just cast here. But that makes it a very 2000 film. Yeah, for sure. Um... Those are the main cans I think you need to cast. Alan is the other one you need to cast. Alan is tricky. Michael Sarah, very good casting for Alan. For casting that kind of innocent, chilled out, non-toxic, young guy character, if it was 2000, I want to say I might, I, it might be a little late casting him in 2004. I want to say Matthew Broderick. I feel like Ferris Bueller himself could have pulled that off. Now, 2000 was after he did Godzilla. So maybe he would have been a little older at that stage than I'm thinking. I I envision him still kind of being a little bit older than he was in Ferris Bueller. But like around that age, him, that would have been perfect. Maybe he would have been a little too old by 2000. But I think he would have made it work anyway. And playing this very innocent, like 
goofy kind of character. That's what Alan is. It would have been great. I think that would have been perfect. Um, for the actual humans, there's kind of a few in there. Gloria, obviously, unquestioningly, you would have cast Renee Zellweger. Because America Ferrera is playing her as this very kind of harried mum character who's also meant to be this, like, more average woman. And 2000's version of what looked like an average woman was Renee Zellweger. It was Bridget Jones, okay? No, she's not actually an average-looking woman. She's a very beautiful woman. But so is America Ferrera. So really... <laughs> Hollywood standards still teach us that's what an average looking woman is like and look at her roles in like Jerry Maguire she's playing this very harried mom while also being this big leading character in it that was a perfect fit and that was only a couple of years before 2000 Renee Zellweger would have been perfect to play Gloria back then as for her daughter as for Sasha I think I think 2000 would have been the right time to cast Lindsay Lohan for that kind of sassy young teenager role I think Lindsay Lohan was like 13, 14. That would have been perfect. Yeah, that's exact casting. That is, thank God, slam dunk, because I don't know what child actor I would have cast instead. <laughs> but they would have been perfect as a pair. I don't think they ever did a film together, Renee Zellweger and Lindsay Lohan. That would have been perfect as a mother-daughter relationship, this kind of sassy teenager, Renee being this harried mom who's starting to think about death accidentally for a Barbie and brings her into the real world because of that. Nailed it. Nailed it. I love this casting. It's so cool. It's such a cool idea. And the CEO of Mattel. Instead of Will Ferrell, if they'd done it in 2000, it probably would have been Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was at that level in 2000. Around 2000, I feel like, is when he did like Liar Liar. He was this big corporate guy who learned how to not be an asshole by the end. Yeah. And he was just that level of like outrageous comedy that Will Ferrell is kind of happy doing. I mean, Will Ferrell could practically... Elf was 2003. He was around, but he was he was too young, probably, for this role then. Jim Carrey might have been a little bit young for this role then, but I think you would have gotten away with it okay. And it would have been played off for hilarious comedic effect. And then Ruth Handler is the other one I feel the real need to cast. She doesn't have a lot of screen time, but Ruth Handler, or Ruth Handler's ghost, or whatever she is in the film, <laughs> was a weird film. I think it would have been Julie Andrews. In 2000. Yeah, that would have been beautiful. Simple, just uh, casting to see her walk in and, and play the role like now even. She alive. She's alive, right? But definitely in 2000, that was around the time she was doing like the Princess Diaries as the wise older lady. Like, would have been fantastic casting. And director, because Greta Gerwig was as much a part of this, as much an important part of this as anybody. If it had been 2000, I was trying to think through a few of the kind of pioneering female directors, I think it would have been Sofia Coppola. Judging from the work that each of the kind of major ones that could have actually been getting this role did, I think it would have been Sofia Coppola that got it. And that would have been awesome. Again, I love it. I love this whole thing. I love the idea of kind of casting, like, films in different periods of time. So if you guys have any other ideas for that, let me know. If you guys have any other ideas for movies are bad or for things I should rank, let me know in the comments, in the... I don't know if you're watching this on Spotify where you can comment. Go at me on Twitter at Pyman Games. I don't know. But thank you guys very much for watching. That is another episode wrapped up. And Barbenheimer, we can say a legendary thank you. It was the fourth biggest box office weekend in cinema history. It's incredible. It, it was such a force of nature. I feel the need to at least go see Oppenheimer again. Maybe Barbie too. God, I might go do that right now. That'd be sick. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just that good. 
And uh, next week, the look ahead, quickly, we've got Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken. We've got No Hard Feelings, because there's a couple of films I still missed, kind of June-July time, so I'm going to be handling those two. Going to be handling the new horror film, Talk To Me, which looks kind of okay and the whole mission impossible franchise up to this point that's right another goddamn summer blockbuster that ends on a cliffhanger you son of bitches um we'll also be talking about tsunam b oh that sounds like it's bad and uh i haven't decided on the fan cast yet but let me know in the comments if you're on youtube especially what you'd like to see for that and i'll see you guys next time